Welcome everybody back into Down the Line. As always, I'm your host, Carson Breber, and as of today, a bunch of players have touched down in Melbourne, Australia, as we sit three weeks away from the Australian Open, hopefully two weeks away from the ATP Cup, if that can proceed as planned. But, of course, although there is reason for optimism there because the season is really starting to get underway, we also have quite a deal of COVID controversy. And so before I get into my takeaways from the first week of action in Delray Beach and in Abu Dhabi and in Altanya, first, we need to talk about what's going on with COVID right now. So for those who are not familiar with the circumstances, this really started when Bianca Andreescu's coach tested positive for COVID on the same charter flight that carried several players. And then in that same day, a later flight had a confirmed case with another 23 players on board. So right now, we apparently have nine personnel who are confirmed to have contracted the virus and who are in Melbourne Australian quarantine and 72 players in total who are in a hardline quarantine. So that is the status of things presently. Now, Djokovic made headlines unsurprisingly yet again yesterday by requesting a number of accommodations, some of which seem more reasonable than others. It began with at asking for fitness and training materials in each room if they were going to be forced to stay in there for the entirety of the two weeks, which I think makes perfect sense. They are pro athletes who need to remain in peak condition. As for quality food, which also should be totally reasonable, but then kind of stopped making sense. As for a reduced quarantine, less than the mandatory 14 days if Players repeatedly tested negative, asked that if that were the case, they could be moved to the same floor as their coaches so they could have some interactions with them. And that just doesn't make sense, even with the repeated testing that confirms them negative. We are all familiar with the incubatory period of the virus at this point. And considering there is still a week's margin from the end of this 14-day quarantine before the tournament even starts, that risk is not only impossible, it's not even totally necessary. This is obviously really unfortunate that these players can't practice. It sucks and... Maybe it will be a disadvantage to some of them. Hopefully guys like Djokovic, who have plans to advance rather deep in this tournament, can have that week of preparation, then also have a little bit of a tune-up to the tournament, or to the bigger rounds of the tournament, with just, you know, their first couple matches. We'll see if he's able to participate in the ATP Cup. I'm not really sure, and I'm not sure what the status is for all of the players who are currently in quarantine with regards to the ATP Cup, which would be unfortunate if we lost out on a bunch of great talents from that, because... It was an incredibly fun tournament last year and a great way to kickstart the year with the biggest stars. But really, this is life in the times of COVID. And if we can pull off the Australian Open, then that is a great accomplishment. But to do that, it requires the maximum level of safety and caution, obviously. And reducing any sort of quarantine period is not going to help accomplish that in any way. And I also think that this maybe isn't the most glaring instance, but it speaks to sort of a leniency among these players with regards to COVID. Obviously, that started with Djokovic and the Adria Tour and all the guys who were over there partying and contracted the virus, but that was a long time ago. And you would think that with the entire return to the tour, with obviously all the complications that came with that, the events that had to be canceled, you would think that players would be highly incentivized to be cautious, but that really doesn't seem to be the case across the board. We have Elise Cornet saying that the restrictions are ridiculous that are going on in Australia right now. In Delray Beach a couple weeks ago, we had Christian Harrison refusing to wear a mask for an interview. And you can't sustain a sport like this. If you look at the model, it is only the sports and the leagues that are using the utmost caution that are able to sustain themselves. And yes, tennis is easier to pull off in theory because you only have two people directly evolved in a match and they are separated by a large physical barrier, that being the net and the entirety of the court. But Still, you have international travel here. You have a bunch of people flocking to one place. So it is obviously not something that can just be dismissed as far as posing a COVID threat. And when players act like it is, that's just putting the sport in danger. Because 
if we are going to save the 2021 season, then we have to put our foots down now. And I say we like I have any say in it, but I'm talking about administration, tournament officials, ATP personnel, because they have to be harsh. It's for everyone's good if we are going to have a season, because beyond the literal COVID risk that you have just by acting recklessly or by not fully understanding the extent of the virus and the threat that you pose to the people in the surrounding area who are maybe more at risk and all that, you're just not going to be able to pull off a season. There's going to be cancellations. We already saw the Asian swing of the tour got canceled last year because there was so much uncertainty, and we don't want anything like that happening again in 2021. We don't want Indian Wells, which has been pushed back to get canceled. We don't want the Australian Open, which has been pushed back to get canceled because there's a bunch of pragmatic questions that arise from that. How do we do rankings? Because obviously we have this combined 2019-2020 system right now. How long can you sustain that for? Can you do that over three years if we have that amount of tournaments canceled this year? I don't think that would be good for anything. And then also, of course, you're talking about the financial compromise that these people will have to be making, particularly those on the lower tours who maybe can't make their full living. All of that we want to avoid at all costs. And tennis actually is a sport that really has survived without many COVID outbreaks to this point. The only event that started and then had to be canceled because of COVID was the Adria Tour, which of course was not affiliated with the ATP or WTA in any way and took place in a different time with really just a lack of caution that was practiced. So we should be able to go ahead and finish this. But skepticism perpetuated by the players is just a no-go. And I wouldn't lump Djokovic into the same tier for his most recent actions with other people because I think it's well-intentioned. He's trying to secure the best possible experience and eliminate any competitive disadvantage for himself and the many other players who very likely do not have COVID but are still in this quarantine. And I think that if this were a different virus, if this were a different time, maybe his request would sound more reasonable, but we just know how this works and it is just flat out not worth the risk. So I am optimistic that the tournament will still take place and I don't really have any reason to think otherwise. It's a scary start, of course, not how you want things to kick off, but if caution is exercised and if all of the proper procedures occur, then I think that we should be able to have Australian Open tennis. But there is still three weeks to go until then, so if I'm going to do my preview and all that, it will not be just yet. However, we have had some tennis go down this season, and maybe not any massive tournaments with head-turning names, but sometimes that's the fun stuff here. Sometimes we get to talk about the Sunwoo Kwans and the Igor Gerasimovs. That's my favorite stuff that we do here on Down the Line. So, I'm going to be giving just a few of my biggest takeaways from that first week of action, talk about some players who stood out to me. The first guy is Sebastian Corda. Corda is very good, and it pains me to say that initially when I was doing my 10 bold predictions for the 2021 season episode, one of my predictions involved Corda really breaking through because he was obviously very impressive last year, going to the fourth round of the French, even though he got destroyed by Rafa once he got there. So did Djokovic. So did everybody. Beating Isner en route to doing that. And really the only reason that I excluded him was I didn't feel like he was that cohesive with the take, which involved Nakashima, Alcaraz, and Musetti, who are all a little bit younger than him because Corda is in his 20s. Those guys are all teens at this point, although Corda is just 20 on the dot. But I do think this guy's really talented. And if you look at the run he just had in Delray Beach, beating Sun Wukwan, who is a legitimate player, beating Tommy Paul, who I predicted to be the top-ranked American by the end of this year, beating John Isner, who is currently the top-ranked American, beating Cameron Norrie, that's a really impressive stretch of people to knock out. And I think that Corda's game is really interesting because at times it looks effortless. Sometimes it seems like he's not even really trying, like he's not moving that well. Sometimes he looks flat-footed, he looks overly casual, but he has this incredible ability to generate power effortlessly, to flatten balls out, and at 6'5", 
has really grown into his body, I would say, as far as just understanding how to create that power. He doesn't have a monster serve. He doesn't serve 130s with any regularity, but I still like his serve. I think that he controls and plays it well, and there is a decent amount of pace on it. So he has good hands as well, and I just think that there's really a lot to like about this guy's game. He can attack. He's really strong from both ends. His backhand is beautiful, and he can play with margin and some topspin and then also can just create ridiculous power on the run, slapping forehands cross court that just kind of makes your jaw drop. The only thing that I really don't like is his slice very much. He doesn't really get much bite on it. And sometimes I think he turns to it too much with his return, but he really doesn't hit that many slices compared to other people. And I think that that shows that he understands his weakness. So he's up to number 103 in the world right now. I hope to see him make some noise in the Australian. And I think that if you're looking at the hierarchy of young American talents, he might be the most exciting right now. I love Nakashima. Of course, he does not have the weapons of Korda. And even though I really have been impressed by a Tommy Paul and Taylor Fritz, Riley Opelka, those guys had big years. They feel more like final products. Whereas Korda is clearly still growing into himself, is still finding a way to maximize his talent. And I don't necessarily think that he's going to be some premier guy in the sport, some top 10 player in the world. But if you're going to be a really good American, that's not the bar anymore. It's just, can you be a top 30 guy? Can you be consistently competitive, making third, fourth rounds and slams? And I think that Korda absolutely has the skill set to do that. So he was obviously an incredibly high profile junior. He comes from an incredibly high profile family, obviously with his father, Petr, having been one of the great players in the sport. And I think that he is living up to expectations now and is going to continue to win matches because he's good enough to win now. I mentioned his last couple of results made the fourth round in the French, won a challenger to end his 2020 season, and then here wins four matches against some really legitimate players. He's here. He's legit. Even in his loss to Herkosh, I thought that he was really impressive, and Herkosh played a phenomenal tournament and was a deserving victor. But watch out for Korda. He's already good, and he's going to do, I think, some pretty big things this year. I would not be shocked, as crazy as this may sound, if he was the top-ranked American by the end of this season, just because I think Isner's going to continue to dip a little bit. Court has beaten him now in their last two meetings, and I don't see another person who has really that upside right now. I think that Corda is close enough to his ceiling because he has really developed his game so much that he's going to make some noise. Okay, second takeaway, I'm going to talk about another American who certainly made some noise in Delray Beach. It's the guy who grabbed most of the headlines, partly for his miraculous run, partly for what I was just talking about earlier in the episode with his refusal to wear a mask for an on-court interview that led to him being fined $3,000. Christian Harrison who came into this tournament ranked number 789 and then makes his way all the way to the semifinals. And I think that he is just a very clear demonstration of how deep tennis talent goes. And it's remarkable that you have these guys who are still battling at 26. He'd barely won a tour level match and he is still down there grinding. And you see somehow the margins are so slim because just to qualify for Delray Beach, he went 7-6 in the third against world number 949 Zane Khan. And then a few days later beats Garin, the world number 22, by a more comfortable margin. And when you watch Harrison play, no, he doesn't have any weapons that pop off the screen at you. He doesn't have a big serve, and really his height wouldn't allow him to. He doesn't hit the ball with ridiculous pace. He doesn't have a Del Potro forehand or any of these things. But there are top 20, 30 guys who are able to survive despite that formula. But he's just really good. He has unorthodox strokes, I would say, but he also creates a bunch of racket head speed, so he does get some whip on the ball. He moves really well, which I think is a necessity at his size, but he can play high-level defense because of it. He competes really hard, and having not seen that much Christian Harrison in my life, because obviously he's ever, barely ever been 
on tour level tournaments. He looked like a guy who wanted to go out there and fight for every single point throughout this tournament, and maybe that's because the stakes are higher, but it was impressive, and it's always a good trait to see in somebody. He can vary the pace, has solid touch. So is just the lack of weapons the difference between this guy and being a top 50, top 100 player? No, I certainly don't think so, and sure, he moved up 400-something spots in the rankings just because of this tournament, but it's not to me that this is some impossible fairy tale story. It's that these guys who are grinding down there really are that good, and sometimes it's remarkable who breaks through, but... Harrison deserves to be commended for that, and it's just crazy when you compare it to his success on the lower levels of the tour. He lost in the first round of his last four challengers. He didn't win a match at a challenger in 2020, and then he happens to be the guy who gets this opportunity, who qualifies for Delray Beach, and who makes some noise. I firmly believe that a number of those guys who were beating him in those challengers could have done the same if it happened to be their week and if they got the right draw and all these things. And that's just the way the sport of tennis is, and yet these guys are barely making a living and they're scrapping for everything. It's just crazy. I do also want to say on the flip side of this, this is not an official takeaway, but I'm a little bit concerned for Garin because I just don't think he's quite as good as his ranking. He's number 22 in the world right now. He's coming off back-to-back years with two titles each and had a stretch last year where he won back-to-back titles in Cordoba and then in Rio. And he really does have success on clay. I just think when you're talking about the lack of weapons, as I was with Harrison... The same applies to Garin. He does not really hit the ball with overwhelming pace. He doesn't dictate matches all that much. And if you look at his career record, 15 and 27 on hard, 2 and 5 on grass, I just don't think his game translates outside of clay. So that's a little mini takeaway there, just because I think he's relatively young. He's had a successful past couple years, but I'm not that confident that his success is sustainable at the level that he's currently ranked. I think when you compare him to other guys in that same tier, he often looks outclassed and he looks just less talented than them. But When you're talking about a guy who looks maybe more talented than his rankings, absolute credit to Christian Harrison for that. Obviously, I don't think we'll be hearing very much more from him because he's not exactly in position to qualify for any big tournaments. He's still ranked about 350 in the world, so the door is kind of closed to him there. It's incredible to me that he's still out there grinding on the tour, as I've said, at 26. Maybe his brother Ryan has opened some doors to him there. I don't know. I wouldn't think so financially because it's not like Ryan has made a killing, but it's impressive dedication and... It was an impressive run. It's unfortunate that he had to sort of strip himself of a fifth of his prize money by being boneheaded with the whole mask thing, but at least he wore it to his next post-match interview, and we'll see if we hear any more from him. Again, I don't expect to, but it's always fun to see runs like this, and it speaks to the depth of the sport. Okay, another takeaway. That's all I have from Delray Beach. Now we're moving to Antalya, which was a tournament with probably a slightly inferior draw, but the man who won it, Alex Dumanar. I just love to see because I think that big things are in store for Diminar. I am an optimist with him, and when he first came onto the scene, I really wasn't. I thought he was kind of just a guy who ran really fast. He had super unorthodox, visually displeasing strokes, I would say. Didn't have weapons whatsoever. Looked like against the top guys, he would kind of get pushed around. And yes, he could battle with other people and basically wait until they missed and outlast them in that way, but he wasn't going to go out there and match the top guys stroke for stroke, hit with their pace, you know, actually go out there and win points. He was just going to be the benefactor of other people beating themselves. But I think that he changed a lot of those narratives late in 2019, early in 2020, but then kind of stagnated for the rest of that season. Was only 13-10 and 10 last year, dealt with injuries that kept him from playing in as many tournaments as he probably would have wanted to. But I mentioned his hot start to the year, 
The most impressive match to me that he played, and I've talked about this multiple times before, was his close defeat to Rafa. But he also beat Zverev. He beat Shapovalov in the ATP Cup. He started the year ranked number 18 at his very young age. And then fell to number 25 at the end of the year. So I said he stagnated. There's a case to be made that just looking at those metrics, he actually regressed. But it was great to see him win this tournament here. He beat Gofan to do it. Again, it wasn't an overwhelmingly difficult draw, but I just think this speaks to a great way to start off the season for him because he didn't win a title last year. I think that he already has one now, and I think that we are in store for a couple more because he's a special competitor. And his fitness is ridiculous. He's also one of the best movers in the sport, and those two kind of go hand in hand, but his efficiency of movement is incredible, his ability to cover court is incredible, and his ability to do it time and time again really might be the best in tennis right now. It's like Murray-esque, I would say, but maybe even a little bit more wild because the speeds at which he's moving at, and obviously they call him the demon, he is a speed demon. And he can also crank on the ball, as I said. He can really flatten it out. His ability to flatten out his forehand on the run is insane. So I just think we know how impressive Demon R is. Last year was disappointing, but it didn't really feel like that's the trajectory that his career is headed on in any way to me. I think that what we saw in 2019 where... He had a 41-20 and 20 record. He won three titles. He won six of his last eight matches versus top 15 opponents. None of that to me feels fluky. Even if he doesn't follow the conventional formula, even if he doesn't have the weapons, even if he doesn't have the conventional strokes, this dude just wins matches. And he can do some really special jaw-dropping things out there on the tennis court. And so I am optimistic that he sustains that success and builds upon it in 2021 and has a much better year than he did last season. So He's a talented guy. Maybe this isn't shocking, but again, it's a great way to start off the season. Okay, so we did three on the men's side. Let's do one on the women's side where the tournament was unsurprisingly chaotic, as is often the case on the women's side these days, especially if the top, top players are absent. It ended up being that Kudermatova won the whole thing. I wish I had a strong Kudermatova take for you. I really don't, but I do have a take about one player who she beat, and that is Marta Kostyuk. So Kostyuk may not be a household name at this point. I would say her most significant accomplishment before this tournament was probably taking Osaka to a third set in the U.S. Open last year. That was her only real relevant result predating this tournament. But she's 18 years old. She's up to world number 78 now after reaching the semis in Abu Dhabi. And I think that she's really one to watch. I'm not going to give a specific expectation for her this year. Say I think she'll be a top 20 player in the world or whatever. But She's certainly talented and I think is someone we should keep our eyes on. She didn't beat anybody insanely impressive to get to the semis. She beat Hadretska, she beat She, she beat Zidanecek, she beat Soribes Tormo. None of those players are in the top 50, although they are certainly, many of them, more proven veteran season pros than her. But I really like her game. It's not as much about the people she beat as it is the way that she beat them and just how composed and impressive she was out there. She has real power specifically from the forehand, she is comfortable at the net and she likes to come in there and she has good hands and she's super aggressive. She closes in hard on volleys. And then from the baseline, she hits with margin. She sometimes will effectively hit a moon ball if she needs to just buy herself some time and is comfortable brushing the ball over time and again. She moves well, so she's capable of playing a little bit of defense and brushing balls back there. But she wants to attack and the inside-out forehand for her can be deadly when she opens that thing up. So I think that she's scary in that way. She can control matches, and then she can also play a little bit of defense when she needs to, but her aggressive mentality is what I really like to see, that she wants to be the aggressor, the one who's dictating how this match is played. And then another thing that was incredibly impressive from her out of this tournament was her mental approach, where against Cerebes Tormo in the quarterfinals, she loses the first set 6-love and comes back and wins that match in 3 
that's a really tough thing to do. I mean, that's an incredibly deflating way to begin a match, especially against a player who is older than you, who is tough to beat, who is a dogged competitor, and who has really every conceivable advantage over you at that point, and you come back and you fight and you win, it's incredibly impressive. And she really does wear her emotions on her sleeve, which I like. She gets really excited, outwardly so, and I think that that is fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that, and it shows you the kind of competitor that somebody is. Not that you're not that kind of competitor if you don't express it, but she really makes that plain for all to see. And then, even in a loss against Kudermatova, goes toe-to-toe with her, in a 10-8 tiebreak in the first set, and then in the second set, saves four match points and never tenses up and never is fearful. Even on the match point that she did ultimately end up losing, she opened up on a big forehand and she just barely missed it, but I love to see she remained smart, yet she remained aggressive. She didn't change her play style, but she was also aware of the situation and aware of not beating herself recklessly in that moment, giving herself the best possible chance to win while staying true to her style. And I just think that's really impressive stuff to see from an 18-year-old. So as we focus on some of the more shiny teens who have deservedly earned that attention, who have accomplished more, if it's Anisimova, if it's obviously a Grand Slam winner in Sviatek, if it's Coco Goff, all these people are certainly deserving of more attention. But that doesn't mean that we can't find the diamonds in the rough. And I think that Kostyuk is really possibly one of those diamonds in the rough. I think that she will continue to progress and may end up being one of the better players on tour this season because I don't think that she's very far away at all from being in that status. She's a complete game. She is there mentally at 18, which is impressive. And that's the kind of package that you don't see every day. So she's 78 in the world right now. I think that that can reasonably move up and I sort of expect it to. So... On that note, that will do it for us here today. This was a shorter episode, but obviously we don't have that much tennis to actually talk about up to this point, and we have now a couple more weeks of down periods. So not exactly off to a blazing hot start to the season compared to last year when we had the ATP Cup kick things off right away, except for, of course, in COVID cases where there is certainly plenty to talk about. So I will, of course, be back with another episode next week. Even though we will not really have any tennis to talk about, I will find a way for us to fill the time productively and in an interesting way as we gear up towards the Australian Open, which I am very, very excited for seeing how everybody looks with some great returners on the women's side, including Andreescu, who, of course, I am a huge optimist with seeing if Djokovic can win his ninth title there. It's just going to be boatloads of fun, and it's all about making sure that we can actually get to the point where that happens safely and where that is the best thing for everyone involved. And that's sort of what I wanted to touch on at the beginning of today. It's that long-term, people just have to be smarter than they are right now. And if they are, then we will get through this and we will have some incredible tennis. So that'll do it for us here today. I've been Carson Brever, and this was Down the Line.